On September 2, 1945, in Tokyo Bay, aboard the deck of the American battleship the USS Missouri, Foreign Minister of the Empire of Japan, Mamoru Shigemetsu, signed the Japanese Instrument of Surrender before George MacArthur, formally ending the conflict between Japan and the Allied powers and finally bringing an end to World War II. What happened a few weeks before is what ostensibly brought Japan to sign those surrender documents aboard the Missouri. And we're going to discuss that tonight. I'm Jake from DadBot History. How are you guys doing? Fine. I'm You're struggling well to figure well. out what does I what does ostensibly mean? Because I you hear do? that used a lot. I need Bye, to look Jake. it up. He does. He uses it a lot. Ostensibly. Yeah. Oh, apparently or purport. Couldn't you just say apparently? All right. But perhaps not actually. What? Now, who's the All teacher right. here? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I use the word, too. I'm just not sure exactly what it means. I'm doing fine. How are you, Jake? Jake is frozen <laughs> on my screen. He's yeah, frozen he on my... He just... And it's a beautiful <laughs> moment, too. It looks like this. He can't even defend himself. Jake <laughs> <laughs> with the podcast. He's like, fine. You don't like my intro. I'm out. <laughs> He's still. You okay, yeah, buddy? He's really mad. Well, no, he looks perplexed. Oh, and Utah, not known for its beautiful internet speeds, apparently. <laughs> that was a fantastic opening. <laughs> Wait, he's coming back. Coming back? You go. are, but oh Thank my God. goodness. <laughs> no, no problem until we actually start the episode, and then I freeze and drop. It's great. The conversation that we had, thinking you were Talking listening. About your... <laughs> no, I wasn't listening to anything. You're in beautiful high def right now, in case you're wondering. Good. That's where I belong. Hey, can can we talk about your apparent upgrade or change of headphones? What's going on there? They're not an upgrade. Well, maybe they are. They're my wife's. Literally, a min- as I'm locking on, I go to grab my headphones, and then one of the the earpieces or whatever it is just snaps, and it just falls apart in my hands. I'm like, well, I well, had to think quick, so I just took my wife's. Thanks uh, a lot, Vietnam. So, yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> We're starting this episode hot tonight. All right. <laughs> So we're not dumping any of that. No, this is all. No, just, this is gold. Just yeah. Podcasting is... gold. Yeah. So, so did you miss <laughs> everything after you said your piece? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I said, how are you guys doing? And then the world burned because I didn't get anything after that. Well, Eric well, we got right into the future, you know, we're talking uh, about ostensibly. ostensibly. So, yeah. The word ostensibly was in a while already. And then I dropped. That's where I dropped. Jake's or I can't. Or Eric's so, credentials or any feature were questioned. <laughs> That's good. Oh, is that new, Jeff? Is that is that a new thing? <laughs> no, it's part of every lead into every episode. I thought. I thought we were doing that. Yeah. No. I mean, I wasn't at the last well. yeah, Critique so, Eric's teaching. Mm-hmm. I've only taught four days in the past week, so it doesn't really count yet. Sure. First week, yeah, just you're mailing good. You're, it you in. you got to get into it. 
Yeah. It's still, still in, uh, camp, really. You're in pre- yeah, you're in preseason form. It's okay. I've got an idea no, for a I, podcast. I, feel- I think we put a mask on you, and it's confessions of a teacher, and you just talk about all the stuff <laughs> you can't really talk about. Do we, do we do a voice modulator like this? Like, do we <laughs> just... Well, my voice is cracking constantly. We're like, this yeah. is a seventh grader, actually. <laughs> so I was peeing yeah. in the classroom, and one of the kids came in. <laughs> a story like that. <laughs> it's not a real story for anybody who's listening. We've all been there. No, hold on, hold on. Because, because Don't that, act like you're better than us. Jeff says that's not a real story. When I was in sixth grade, Ostensibly, my class did that. (laughs) Purportedly, Pete in the classroom. Allegedly, Allegedly. (laughs) in front of God. He's never convicted in a court of law. Well, in the corner of the room, snuck away, snuck away to the corner. Apparently, purportedly, Uh, ostensibly, uh. and Pete in the corner of the room. So facto. Okay, I guess it's more real than we care to believe. God, what are I we got caught being in the fireplace we had this... as a child. I don't know. Does that help? <laughs> oh. <laughs> help? <laughs> yes, it helps. <laughs> I'm here to help, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Hold Were you putting out the fire, Jeff, at least? No, not very well. It was... <laughs> It was a big fire, and I was only like 13 or 14, so my my chances of success were exceedingly low. Slim to none. Ostensibly. Slim to none. So, ostensibly. So I, so this- ostensibly. <laughs> so ostensibly, what happened? <laughs> Someone can make a drinking game out of this every time we say ostensibly. Yeah. You have to drink every time someone says ostensibly, but if they do use the word right, you got to drink Jaeger. So, yep. The rest of the time, you can be beer. But, yeah. <laughs> if somebody so uses topic it wrong tonight, just... and you call them, they drink twice. Oh, yeah. So, before we get into our topic, we're not going to do a dad bump. We're not going to do a dad front story because that's shot already. But unless you guys have a, a, a really great one, I don't know how we can top the past five minutes. So. <laughs> Eric, I went something? to Home Depot today. Uh, I was sent to, uh, yeah, you know, just one time this weekend. I went Are you to sure get... it was Home Depot? <laughs> you sure it was at some other store? Not the Target story? Home <laughs> yeah. Depot? Le Home Store? So... I went for, uh, <laughs> I'm not even, there's no point in telling the story because I'm just, whew. all right. We, okay, we should story. talk. So, all right. Um, I've, I've recently remarried and in the process I've acquired two more sons. Um, I've never had two sons at the same time and watching them can at times be magic. Um, so I'm watching from the kitchen. They're out in the front yard, and I hear a bit of a kerfuffle going on out there. So I'm just going to watch through the window. And there's a fight over the uh, the Razor scooter, you know, the little <clears throat> two-pound aluminum scooters that they have. And 
And we got one scooter and two boys, and this is the source of the discontent. And the boy who ostensibly owns the scooter <laughs> is trying to get it back from his brother who's hogging the scooter. And so anyhow, he gets it back, and the little brother is incensed. And the older brother's walking away. The little brother comes at him, fists flying from behind, and pop, pop, both sides. And he's smaller. So his big brother turns around with a look on his face like, what? And he just lays him out like a forearm to the neck and the chin and puts him down on the grass. Like, I'm inside. I, there's nothing I can do. I've got to go. At this point, I have to run outside like, whoa, whoa, way out of line. And anyhow, I do my you know parental fatherly duties from there. But. Having two boys, this is next level parenting stuff, man. This is different. So, anyhow, I'm gonna have to step up my game a little bit and keep a little closer eye. Like when I hear the 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 elevated emotions going on, mm-hmm. oh, I can't yeah. watch through a window. I have Your reaction to go time's gotta be quick. Yeah, you, you know, gotta be close. I had Jack and Lillian, and they were, you know, Lillian was gonna throw blows before anybody, and Jack was gonna settled he was going to handle his business if he had to but two boys this is and they're eight and nine so they're basically the same age it's mm. so anyhow i'm uh i'm drinking from a fire hose over here on the dad front <laughs> oh okay you know what I've, level, I've heard so. it said that you can never beat up your father and i don't know that i've fully unpacked exactly what that means but you're touching on it right there you your your father yeah. all of our fathers and all of us as fathers have the unique ability to just chill a son out and you don't even want to test it because eh, he's right a lot. And if he's right about this one, I'm in, I'm going to really regret it. So, yeah. And it's just, it's well, funny. Cause it reminded me, Oh, sorry. Can't it just, it reminded me of when I was a kid and my dad said, I will knock you into next week. And I never really understood what that meant, but I believed him. And I never tested that theory. And I felt like it was the same thing. Like, if you if you hit me, it is on. And I'm like, I don't know what it is on meant, but I said it seriously enough that where he believed me. He's like, oh, maybe this is not a move I want to make today. And <laughs> so it was interesting. So, so I remember one time as a, uh, I was in high school. I was probably a senior, so. You know, 16, 17, and I was calling my dad this name, and he was pretty over it. And he looked at me dead in the eye. He said, if you call me that one more time, I'm going to knock you out. And I didn't say another word. That man was serious as a heart attack, and I just went back to my room. I, (laughs) I knew when to shut up for once in my life. And now, Jeff, you're going to be put to the test now. As having gone through the parenting process before, you've got some young bucks coming up through the rank. And as you get older and older, it's going to be tougher and tougher to hang on. So that that theory is going to be put to the test, I think, come. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've, 10, I've got a story that, years from now. Yeah, no, I've got a story that I can share offline that, yeah, it's already started. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. It's not, it's not fit for broadcast. <laughs> All right, Eric, you got anything or you want to get rolling into well, this episode? My my Le Home Depot story is probably not oh, that Oh, yeah, we never got to that. <laughs> but uh, yesterday, um, we uh, ostensibly ran out of laundry detergent. And so my daughter, 
<clears throat> who was doing her la- own laundry uh, realized we were out. We weren't out. We had another container. She just couldn't lift it. So she grabbed another container and poured that in the uh, in the washer. And then she comes out. She says, Mom, we ran out of laundry detergent. I used this. Holds up the bleach. Oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's a few times when I've heard my wife, like, hit her limit and, like, nearly lose it. That was one of them. She, she admitted she didn't handle it well, but... You know, it was one of those, we, we saved all everything but one shirt, one uniform shirt, I might add. Ooh. Ooh. Those ruined. uniforms are not cheap. Either. Not, yeah. Thankfully, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a $60 skirt. It was like a $20 shirt. So it was like, all right, we can handle it. And then we, uh, then we had to run the machine to get the bleach out because it was in it. <clears throat> and I, at some point, put soap in there. And so while I'm out running errands, Amy t- sends me a picture. My wife sends me a picture of the, the washer. It's just filled with suds, and the washer stops. And it says <laughs> on the, the thing, it just says suds. And so I look up, like, what, what's that code mean? It's like, means there's too many suds. It Welcome work. to the hot new bar, suds. <laughs> so my wife had to, like, with my daughter's help, scoop all the suds out of the washer. Anyways, good times. That's it's awesome. awesome. It's awesome in retrospect. It's infuriating <clears throat> in the moment, but oh, awesome. yeah, they make for great stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter will remember that one for a while. Well, yeah, you know, and it's just part of growing up. Kids change. Kids get older. Uh, and speaking of changing, Eric, the American workforce is changing <laughs> faster than ever. Called by some the great resignation, ostensibly. But it's more accurately described as the Great Migration. Today's workers are less content with the status quo, and they are looking outside the box. Business buyers currently outnumber sellers three to one. A business with growing revenues and quality books and records is a very marketable commodity in this market. And this is where Trans World Business Advisors comes in. With over 40 years of business brokerage experience, our network of Professional business brokers offer you connection to the largest and fastest growing brokerage company in the world. That expertise and growth means, ostensibly, that when you work with us, you gain unmatched exposure on a local, state, and national and global level. In addition to working with buyers and sellers of existing businesses, we're also here to help business owners who want to franchise their concept. We also offer turnkey solution to your franchising goals that starts with a viability assessment and follows through to a comprehensive marketing strategy to help you establish and grow your own brand. Call today to set up a discreet and confidential consultation with your local representative. You can reach our very own Jeff Peterson at 903-422-6818, or you can go to www.tworld.com. Again, tworld.com doing good deals for good people that's man. nice <clears throat> yeah how was your basking jeff was that good yeah i'll give i've got some notes i'll give you guys notes later it's all right <clears throat> oh i mean you fast as well. well like that oh my yeah. basking was yeah there's no notes on that basking <laughs> on point. It. 10 out of 10 <laughs> G- <clears throat> Never mind. All right, Jake, I'll what are we talking about, about this week? 
Well, as as we did our lead in, we're talking about the the surrender of Japan ending uh, the conflict of World War II. But more specifically, what we're talking about and what actually came up on some of our TikTok videos this past week or so uh, was a discussion about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for those of you that are not aware, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th, 1945, the United States dropped the first uh, atomic bomb. What is that? Was that little boy? I believe so. Uh, yeah, on the Batman, city of Hiroshima, Japan. And, uh, you know, basically wiped uh, about uh, over half that city off the map. I think it was over 100,000 casualties immediately, and then many thousands more as the effects of the radiation continued to affect the population. Three days later, uh, the United States dropped the second atomic bomb <clears throat> on the city of Nagasaki uh, on August 9th. On August 15th, Emperor Hirohito uh, accepted the terms of surrender, the unconditional surrender, um, as outlined in the Potsdam Convention. And then on September 2nd, 1945, Japan signed uh, the instrument of surrender aboard the USS Missouri. And so this is perfect. Ostensibly, when you look at it that way, the dropping of the two bombs is what brought Japan to surrender uh, and, and bring the war to an end. However, there's been a lot of discussion about that. And in the videos and comments that we had uh, from some of our subscribers, there's more to this story than we dropped the bombs on the August 6th and August 9th, Japan surrendered. The war was over. There's a lot more to that. And that's kind of what Eric and I wanted to get into tonight. And I'm going to hand it off to him. But I, I think when you look at it, you can look at, obviously, the first bombing. You can compare it to the fire bombings that were happening all throughout Japan during the summer of 1945. You can discuss on August 8th, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan and proceeded to invade Manchuria and South Sakhalin Island. And then you can also just talk about, in general, what was Japan's attitude about the war going forward how were they viewing the war? Um, were they ready to surrender or were they going to, you know, fight to the last man as, as often has been said? And so that's kind of the questions that we want to get into and, um, ultimately, you know, discuss the use of the bombs. Were they quote unquote justified or not? Or was there a better solution or wasn't there a better solution? Uh, so Eric, I don't know if you want to take it from there. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of things that led up to the bombings <clears throat> in late July. Um, there's a few stories that kind of coincide, and I think they're kind of interesting to tell. In late July, uh, the USS Indianapolis showed up to Tinian Island with parts of Little Boy, like parts of the assembly for the bomb, because the bomb was not fully assembled when it arrived at Tinian Island. Um, so it was delivered by the USS Indianapolis, which, you know, ostensibly most of the people on board that ship had no idea why they were going to Tinian Island or what they were delivering. Sure. But the USS Indianapolis, a few days after leaving Tinian Island, is uh, struck by a, a Japanese torpedo and is sunk. And if you know the story of the US Indi USS Indianapolis, the survivors of that sinking 
were in shark infested waters for several days before some of them were rescued. Like it, it's one of those, or it may have been weeks. It's one of those like horrific stories um, from World War II is the USS Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. But with the, the, um, the strike on Hiroshima, um, it's kind of interesting, right? All summer, we've talked about how all summer during 1945, was it 63 Japanese cities were targeted by Curtis LeMay? I think it was 68. 68. 67 or 68. And, and these were yeah. like indiscriminate bombing campaigns, napalm bombing campaigns designed to just destroy Japanese cities and destroy their will to fight. <clears throat> we had done some similar actions in Germany, although I I think uh, the firebombing of Dresden was uh, less purposeful. Like, that was almost an accident. There were certain conditions that... Wasn't that the that, Royal Air Force, Eric? Um, it may have been. It might have been a I combination. Mean, I don't know if we're differentiating between America and Britain, or if we're just talking about the Allies I, I, in general. I can't. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of lumping them together, but... The, the bombing of Dresden, the conditions of Dresden when those bombs were being dropped and exploding was enough to create this firestorm that was, it was a big deal. The same thing happened to these 68 Japanese cities, but it wasn't a big deal. We don't look back on them the same way. Um, <clears throat> but as this is going on, uh, towards the end of July and early August, they start to send B-29s over several cities, over Hiroshima and Kokura and Nagasaki. And it's just a lone B-29. It never does anything. And they do this for several weeks so that the people in these cities, which are not military strongholds, they're not – there's no war material being made there. They just get used to B-29s flying over like it's nothing. The air raid sirens go off, but – they don't react because it's like a car alarm going off at that point. So on August 6th, the mission for to drop the bomb in Hiroshima, there's actually three targets. Hiroshima was target one. Kokura was target two. And Nagasaki was the third or the second alternate target. And what they did is <clears throat> three aircraft took off, straight flush, jab at three, and full house. And they each went towards another city. And their objective was to check the weather. And radio back, hey, Hiroshima is all clear, or Jabot 3 uh, would say, you know, Kakura is is cloud-covered, whatever. And then they'd make their decision based on weather. So weather is going to dictate where this bomb actually falls, but they have three targets. Um, by the way, the call signs for these planes during this mission, of which there are seven B-29s involved in this mission. Uh, the call signs are Dimples 85, Dimples 71, Dimples 83, Dimples 82, Dimples 89, Dimples 91, and Dimples 72, for what it, for what it's worth. <clears throat> so you have the weather planes out ahead of everything. And then we know, famously, the Enola Gay is the weapons delivery plane, but it has two other planes with it, the Great Artiste and Necessary Evil. And both of those are observation and instrumentation. They're there to observe what happens, to record what happens, to take any readings that they can get. Um, <clears throat> and we know aboard the Enola Gay, the tail gunner had a video camera. <clears throat> so he actually records the whole thing after the, the cloud goes up. Obviously, they get the 
the radio back that Hiroshima is all clear. It's good to go. And so they make that their target. Um, but it's, it's so there's a lot more involved in this than, than some people realize. Um, this is a big operation and it's an operation that the, the crew of the Enola Gay outside Colonel Tibbetts did not know what was going to be on their plane until hours before they took off. And the only person besides Tibbetts who knew what was going to be happening was the person who was going to arm the bomb because he would have to arm the bomb in flight because B-29s kept crashing while trying to take off from Tinian. They didn't want the plane to crash with a uh, live nuclear weapon on it because that would have wiped out the island. So he was going to have to arm the bomb in flight. Mm -hmm. He had to train for that on the ground at Tinian in the airplane when it's like 120 degrees, but then he had to actually carry that out in the airplane at 30,000 feet at like zero degrees. So, um, you know, obviously this is a huge operation. The question then comes up and in our videos, this is the question I heard the most was, was it justified? And then we also get into, was it necessary? And I'd say the third question was, um, was it the best decision not just for that moment, but for a longer period of time, right? For a decade or two after that. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting, Eric, that you bring up, you know, as you describe it, and you describe the the fire bombings of Japan. Hold is, up a second, is that, Cameron? Are you are you typing? Yeah. Okay. I think there's thunder. Like, a bit too loud. Sorry. Yeah, just just yeah, mute while you're typing. <laughs> Okay. Um, but during the, the, the summer of 45, uh, as you described, 68 cities in Japan had been just carpet bombed, firebombed, and utterly destroyed. And Jeff, uh, you sent us a, a book and it said, talked about, you know, they compared them to American cities. So cities like Cleveland, Sacramento, those cities would be gone. So if you need to visualize in your mind the level of destruction from just conventional napalm well bombing. yeah it's also that's what it was it's cities made of wood and paper yeah and you said there was <clears throat> this is right after the invent of napalm which is essentially jellied gasoline it burns for up to a thousand degrees for up to eight minutes before it goes out so you can imagine dropping that on a city made out of primarily wood and paper is going to be devastating yeah and so it, what that does is it kind of gives us a, a some context and perspective. Japan had been suffering basically continual daily fire bombings since May. And so when we see Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we look at it going, oh my God, how awful was that? They just wiped out a city. And it's like, yeah, they wiped out Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was absolutely atrocious and awful. But it it was just there weren't any cities left at this point. Like that's the difference is Japan didn't have any major cities anymore. They were running out of cities with a significant enough population to destroy. That's how 
total this bombing campaign was over the summer of 1945. And so it offers us a perspective and says, you know, it's not, although the devastation is absolutely incredible, it wasn't more incredible than a lot of these bombings that have been happening before then. And Japan, the, there's, um, I'll see if I can find the quote, but they're basically like, they reported on it the next day. Yep. Hiroshima was, you know, just about 70% destroyed. Uh, and here's the casualties. And that was basically it. That's what the Supreme council basically did with, with Hiroshima. They're like, well, okay. The allies destroyed another one and they knew it was nuclear. They, they understood that, but it, to them, it was, it was just another in a long list of cities that have been utterly destroyed. Well, and apparently from, from Curtis LeMay's bombing campaign that summer, uh, the estimates are 300,000 to 500,000 killed. The estimates of civilian casualties or casualties in total from the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is 130 to 230,000 people. So about half. And, and so that brings up a point is that a lot of people on on these comment threads will say, how is it any worse than the fire bombings? Right? That, that's what they'd say. Uh, and it's a fair question. Like, how is this worse than the fire bombings? And in many respects, it's not. Obviously, we know the, the knock-on effects of a nuclear blast are far worse than a conventional blast because of the radiation and how it poisons the ground and all that stuff. Um but in the just instant of the moment, it was bad. I mean, it's in the top, I think it was like number two as far as casualties. Out of out of the, if you lined up all 68 of those bombings, it's like number two. So it's up at the top, but <laughs> it's not exponentially worse than any single firebombing campaign. But that does bring up this point. It's like, and the question I have is, if Hiroshima, at least is not what caused Japan to surrender. What was? Because it wasn't the firebombing campaigns. Japan was still fighting all throughout the summer of 1945. And it didn't seem like it was Hiroshima that caused them to surrender. So then what was the thing that caused them to surrender? I guess that would be my first question. Because I think if we can figure out that, that'll help us answer the questions that Eric posed which is, was it justified? Was it the best solution? Was it, you know, better long-term? Was it a war crime? I say... Was it a war crime? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to answer that first question, Jake, I, I'm, I'm sitting here as you're describing this. Like, I say this all the time about the heat in Phoenix. The heat in mm -hmm. August is a lot worse than the heat in May because it's yeah. cumulative. You know, it's I, mm -hmm. it's not any one moment or any one, um, you know, nuclear bomb, any one moment necessarily. It's just they got tired of it. And, you know, a country of people and, and the supreme leaders can only take so much. And at a certain point, enough is enough. But I, I, I would argue it's just the accumulation of terrible atrocities. Yeah, and so it's kind of a straw broke the camel's back sort of thing. That's what I would argue. Yeah. <clears throat> so I've been, I sorry, I've been trying to, to throw this up here. This is Tokyo before and after, and I believe this was the May firebombing. 
And uh, you can see this entire portion of Tokyo. It's just like Gone. shard, right? Jeez. Uh-huh. Um, and Tokyo is is not a Hiroshima. Tokyo is. Yeah, I I know what it is today. Even so, this was the city in Japan, and it's it's gone, right? <clears throat> so then that kind of continues the question, though. If if it wasn't the fire bombings, or if it wasn't Hiroshima, or if it was, and it was just a cumulative war weariness, was it a case of war weariness? Um, then then what's the next thing? So then. Was the Nagasaki bombing what finally did it? And I think <clears throat> ostensibly that's the story we're told when we go to school, right? Is the way that the United States defeated Japan was that they dropped the bomb in Hiroshima on August 6th. They dropped the bomb in Nagasaki on August 9th. There was on August 15th is when Hirohito uh, accepted the terms of surrender. And then uh, September 7th is when it became formalized on the Missouri. And so based on that telling of the story, that's how, that's what brought Japan to surrender. Because before then, part of the story that we're told is that Japan was waiting because the United States, I think was planning on invading the mainland in November. They were planning an amphibious assault uh, in November from the South. And, Japan was waiting to fight and they had like a million, two soldiers, 1.2 million soldiers stationed to repel an American invasion. And so one of the other things, and actually one of my professors in college, he taught in Japan for a while at the school in Japan there. And he said that they were willing to fight and die until, you know, to, to make the Americans largely pay as much as they could, even though they knew that they were probably going to lose. And, and so it seemed like all throughout the summer, none of that had changed. Japan was waiting for America to land an amphibious assault and they were being bombed every single day. Another city was wiped off the map and still the Japanese were waiting for the Americans to assault. However, on August 8th, something interesting happened. So in between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, something interesting happened. The Soviet Union, which up until this point was neutral with Japan. They had a neutrality pact that went until 1946 up until August 8th, 1945. That day is when the Soviet union declared war on Japan and then be preceded by invading Manchuria and then invading the Kiril islands and Sakhalin Island and uh, Mongolia. And that changed the dynamics. And there's an article from, uh, see if I can find it here. Foreign Sorry. policy. Uh, there's an, uh, no, there's, I read that one. Yeah. Yeah. Foreignpolicy.com. And so up until then, there's two tacks that Japan was trying to end this war, even though they knew they were going to lose. One was diplomatic and it was a group consisting mostly of civilian leaders led by foreign minister Togo Shigenori, uh, hoped that Stalin might be convinced to mediate a settlement between the United States and its allies on one end and Japan on the other. The second plan was military. Most of its proponents, led by the army minister Anami 
Korachika were military men. They hoped to use the Imperial Army ground troops to inflict high casualties on the U.S. forces when they invaded. If they succeeded, they felt that they might get the United States to offer better terms. So they were hoping that the Soviet Union would mediate for them. But if they didn't, then they were just going to fight the Americans as hard as they could. However, the impact of the Soviet declaration of war and invasion on Manchuria and Sakhalin Island was quite different. However, once the Soviet Union declared war, Stalin could no longer act as a mediator. He was now a belligerent. So the diplomatic option was wiped out by the Soviet move. And then the other thing that they note is while the Japanese were willing to fight the United States when they invaded, there was no way that they could fend off an invasion from the United States and from the United, uh, from the Soviet Union. And so that eliminated their military option as well. And so the, the premise of this article, and there's a couple other articles, this is from foreignpolicy.com, uh, foreign uh, is that the Soviet Union is what brought Japan to accept the terms, the unconditional surrender um, from the Potsdam conference. Yeah. And not the bombs. Yeah, because they, they would no longer have the mediator. They no longer have like an advocate. <clears throat> to to kind of negotiate that piece a little bit more instead of being unconditional. We know that Japan had had been presented with a few peace options up until that point, but those allowed for the emperor to stay as emperor, and that was one of the things that the Americans insisted upon, right? So that was a sticking point, so things continued on for several weeks as well. Once you have the mediator no longer available, suddenly it changes the calculus. Yep. This is similar to the conversation we have about World War II in the European theater. And that is, and maybe rightly so, we're Americans, we live in the United States, or we live in Britain, we live in the West. Like We really think through all of the sacrifice and efforts of the Americans and the British knowing that from 1941 until 1945, the Russians were absorbing for four straight years, they were absorbing the brunt of the Nazi war machine. You know, the British yeah. were fighting the Germans in North Africa and the Americans showed up in North Africa in 1943. But I mean, outside the Blitz, which was only really occurring in uh, 19 in the fall and winter of 1940. The Germans and British were not really having much war being fought between them. Everything was being fought in the East or in North Africa. And then, you know, we're always told the story about D-Day and all the American and British operations that finally changed the war. But the, the, the tide of the war had already turned in 1943 at the Battle of Stalingrad, when the Russians are able to stop the Germans and then capture a German army, from that point on, the Germans are on their heels. The British can make advances in, with the Americans in North Africa. D-Day is just almost a uh, like a formality to the direction of things. It just confirms what's going to happen anyways. And, and moves it along. And where we often say, well, the Americans, the British won the war. This, without the Soviets, the Germans would have rolled over 
the entire British Isles, and they would have had no one to stop them from that point on. So the Soviet role in World War II in both theaters is, is critical, and it's often overlooked in the West. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, we don't like Stalin, and it, that's not hard to see why. But you're right. Without the Soviet Union, the war, I still think inevitably the Allies would win. But it would take much longer. And it would take a lot more loss of, oh, life, yeah. of life, particularly American life, um, to, to reach that same result. So I, I don't think it changed the outcome, but it sped it along. Mm-hmm. And that's largely, like you said, because the Soviets took the brunt of the German war machine those first few years. But get, getting back to that, so my question is then, and it, it, it's not, if you're, if you're not, a, you don't have to accept the premise that the Soviet Union is the reason that Japan finally offered to surrender unconditionally, because it looked like that they were, like you said, they were willing to surrender before, but they wanted better terms. They didn't want unconditional surrender. But if, if the Soviet Union, if they are the reason that Japan finally came to the table and accepted the unconditional surrender, then why did we drop the bombs? If those weren't what turned the war, why did we drop the bombs? So I have a couple of thoughts about this. Um, the Japanese had a nuclear program. The Germans had a nuclear program. The Soviets have a nuclear program. I'm sure even the British did. Um, a lot of people had a nuclear program during World War II. Everyone was in the race. They understood what the potential was. They just had to figure it out. And then once they figured it out, it's actually pretty simple. Simple, right? Um, but capability is one thing. Because we could have, right? And often it's been argued, and I argued as a kid, why couldn't we just have dropped the bomb off the coast of Japan and shown them what we were going to do or what we could do? Show them our capability. But, again, if we look at some of this evidence that, that it really wasn't the bombs that, that brought them to the table, well, that demonstrating our capability isn't going to show them. So then we have to look at what's the purpose of dropping these bombs and what's the purpose of dropping them on a populated city? One is to demonstrate capability. The other one, this is where the calculus for the United States in the summer of 1945 and even the spring of 1945 has probably changed from we need to do everything we can to defeat Japan to we need to defeat Japan in the most total war poss- way possible because we have to demonstrate our capability and our willingness to anyone in the future who might step at us. Right. There's i.e. I. the Soviet Union. Right. Like. Yeah. The dropping the bomb wasn't to end the war with Japan necessarily, but to demonstrate. And I always say twice, not just the capability, because we had it and we had it for eight years, but also the willingness to not just carpet bomb and napalm cities, but also nuke cities. We're capable and willing. So chill out, Stalin. Like, we know what your end game is. So it's this game of realpolitik. We are we are moving pieces 
into place because we we also have this plan for a new world order. Ooh. Uh, you know, like the Bretton Woods Conference, we have a plan for what the world is going to look like after the war. And the American role in that has to be secured here at the end of this war. And if it's not very clear to everyone else what the, our role is going to be, um, if there's a lack of clarity, then the Soviets are going to push their push their luck in a lot of different ways. And then we have a bigger problem. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Um, and I think a big part of the, the reason that they did do it was more so as a shot across the bow to Stalin and less so as a means to end the war with Japan. Because they could have they could have blockaded them. Admiral Halsey, um, you know, he said that the bombing, especially atomic bombing of civilians, is morally indefensible. He was commander of the U.S. Third Fleet. Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower expressed his misgivings about the using of the bombs on Japan. Uh, And then another one. Uh, Secretary of War Henry Stinson said he noted that Japan has no allies. Its Navy is nearly destroyed. She is vulnerable to an economic blockade, depriving her of sufficient food and supplies for her population. She is terribly vulnerable to our concentrated air attack on her crowded cities, industrial and food resources. She has not uh, she has against her not only the Anglo-American forces, but the rising forces of China and the ominous threat of Russia. And the United States has an inexhaustible and untouched industrial resources to bear against her. So the Secretary of War felt like, based on that, that we could have defeated Japan any number of ways. We didn't need to use the bomb to do it. We could have sent an invasion fleet. We could have just blockaded and starved starved them until their government gave in. Um, so there was other options on the table. So I tend to agree with you that the bombing was more so a reason to keep Russia at bay than it was to defeat Japan. Um, But I think we use the bombing to say that's what defeated Japan. We have this miracle weapon that can stop a determined enemy in its tracks, so to speak. Well, and how often do you hear about Curtis LeMay's campaign of firebombing? I mean, we all, everybody. Almost never. Yeah, almost never. Exactly. We all hear about atomic bombs and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But um, until I came across that book, I I wasn't aware of that. I I didn't know that napalm had been used uh, in World War II at all, but it was used extensively and to kill a half million civilians. Uh, No military targets in the vast majority of these cities. So um, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, the Geneva convention existed, uh, that was that was brought to bear well, between you say, one and World War One and Two, correct? Yeah, didn't you say between the in the book uh, Lemay that he said, "Had we not won the war, we'd be put up for war crimes." Yeah, it wasn't in that book, but I did find it in an article later. He was, uh, yeah, he was agreeing with somebody else's assessment that they would have been brought up on war crimes, and he he agreed that winning the war carried a lot of weight and keeping most of them out of the Hague. Yeah. So I I think it's interesting. And this is another, Eric and I were talking about this last night. Um, You know, it's interesting because a lot of these commenters are saying, well, the fire bombings were just as bad, which I agree. They were just as bad, at least in the initial impact. Um, So what does it matter if we nuked them? And, 
you know, but then the, the other thought here is maybe the fire bombings and the atomic bomb were equally indefensible from a moral standpoint. And, and what Eric and I mentioned is even Genghis Khan offered cities a chance to surrender. And many of them accepted. Uh, and he had this idea, if you don't raise arms against me, I'm not going to attack you. I'll destroy your armies, but I won't destroy you. Uh, and so this idea that, well, it was just the 40s and that's how they did things. And, and maybe in some respect it was. Well, and that's what some of those comments were like, well, it was different back then. But like Clearly. you said, there were war. Yeah, there were war crimes, though, like and and we put Japan and well, not so much Japan, but Germany, we put them up for war crimes. We said what you did was morally wrong. It doesn't matter if it was war. And it wasn't just the concentration camps that they were put up to war crimes for. So, yeah, but let's not I, let's I, not forget for a moment that people we put some people on trial for war crimes, for what like uh, Unit 731 did in Japan and some of the experiments that the, the, the Germans were conducting. Um, let's not forget that we also uh, basically gave immunity to both Japanese and German scientists. So they would part of the SS. So they would come work for the U.S. government. Yeah. And the rest we put on trial. Winning the war clearly carries a lot of weight. Yeah. It's much yeah, it like does. being rich and getting in trouble in the United States. It's a very similar scenario. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, like you said earlier, to the victor goes the spoils. And that's that's true. You win, you get to make the rules. So that that is a big part of it. It's interesting because but, we come up with this term total war. And that seems to justify everything that happens, because as long as you can say the objective of this particular mission was to try to break the will of the enemy and every citizen of that of that state is part it's of the enemy. part of the machine of that enemy. Unless they bring down their own government, they are upholding and enabling that machine. So every part of it is is there's no part that that's like off limits. And that's the idea of total war. You sound like and, a and I think the going the whole going down the road of the moral argument, you know, it's really a tough, uh, it's a tough conversation to have because if you're an American, you know, your objective is to preserve American lives. And is that more moral than, you know, saving Japanese lives. And, you know, you can get going down a rabbit hole pretty quickly as to which lives are more valuable and, and that kind of thing. And it's it's more complicated than that, right? You know, and I, I think it's so often in schools we're taught, oh, well, this is a moral thing and, you know, the good guys won and, and it's justified, therefore. So if you're, if you try to make it, too simple and make it just a moral thing. Um, that's, that's not a full appreciation of what happened. You know, there were political ramifications and strategic ramifications to this. And, um, it's cool to hear about the other factors that were involved. Yeah, it is. And I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to want it more is I think inherently amoral because it's war. It's not, but 
it is something where for whatever reason, especially in Western society, but I, well, and, and Eastern for sure, but there's this idea of fair play in war. And that's an, that's an ancient idea. Uh, the chivalric code was a idea of fair play, but also, um, you know, this idea of no armies go to war at this time and you don't attack at night and you can send champions and all this stuff. And, and so there's this idea of fair play throughout war. That's not new, but with the, the advent of the, the destructive power of the 20th century, I think the idea of what was fair play was totally thrown on its head. Um, and, and a lot of people say, well, Japan was doing atrocities too. And they were, uh, especially in Manchuria, they were doing horrific things, um, beheading civilians just because they could and, and, and all sorts of just terrible, terrible stuff and say, well, they did it too. It's like, well, yeah, they did it too. But that I, I don't like using that as an excuse for America's poor behavior. Yeah. It's called moral be- relativism. Yeah, just because, you know, the Nazis had concentration camps doesn't excuse the Japanese internment camps in the United States. Like those need to be dealt with as separate issues. And, and particularly in America, I think we need to be better because <laughs> we say we're better, right? Like if if we are better, then we need to look upon our own actions and say, was this right or how can we do this better? Um, it doesn't excuse the Nazis, and it doesn't excuse the empire of Japan for the things that they did, but it, it causes us to reflect on our own act and how we behave in times of strife and in war. Probably should have just dropped it on Moscow because that would have probably brought the Japanese to the table and set things right with the, the Soviets. You look for an opportunity <laughs> to to kill Stalin at any time we discuss any of these hypotheticals. I mean, yeah. Your first option is kill Stalin, whether kill it has Stalin, anything to do with what we're talking about. That'll force the yeah. Japanese to surrender. So, it, but, but it, you know, we bring this up, right? The Japanese, well, we can go back to uh, several weeks ago, you know, talking about Pearl Harbor. And my, my story that I tell about, you know, the people who were killed at Pearl Harbor and the people who survived and these kind of related stories. And then, you know, People mentioning, well, the U.S. took Hawaii illegally and we shouldn't have been there. And it's like, that's beside the point. That's that's a two generations earlier. The 18-year-old who's aboard the USS Arizona probably has no concept of what happened then. They, they may not understand that. And and so that's not their, their burden to bear, knowing that they signed up to be in the Navy in New York City and ended up in Pearl Harbor – um, mm-hmm. and then died, that's, that's, it's just immaterial to the point or the story. And so we, we go to something like, um, you know, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the point that some people were making was basically, uh, we shouldn't have been there to begin with. So that's why we got bombed at Pearl Harbor. Does that justify Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And it all comes down to these people are basically saying, we were asking for it. And I, I don't think that's the case, but also do Japanese atrocities deserve the American response via the fire bombings and the nuclear bombings? 
is that are the Japanese deserving of that because of the things that they carried out? And and I wonder what people's responses to that would be. And then compare and contrast that with. Do the Confederates in Georgia deserve or the Confederate, like the civilians in Georgia deserve what happened to them during Sherman's March to the Sea? Because it's the same yeah, question. That would be the first modern total war example of total war was Sherman's March to the Sea in the Civil War. And like you said, women and children were killed. Houses were burned. Farms were destroyed. Uh, people For what it's starved. worth, that's Be- all pre-Geneva Convention. Not that that, I mean, it is morally, yeah, right. I don't know what difference that makes. But 1864 legally. Geneva Convention. To which the United States was not part of. A couple of times. That was the, yeah, that was the original. And I don't know if the U.S. was party to that. Oh, no, they were. But were they? I don't know. It doesn't. The point is, like, I, I don't know many people that stand around and say Sherman's march to the sea was too much. And it was too brutal. Because... I wonder if we lived in the South, if you're, if that opinion would be different. And I'm not saying I'm a, like it lived in the South and lost cause and all that stuff. But I'm saying you lived in the South and your ancestors suffered because of Sherman. Or your ancestors I mean, were freed because of Sherman. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, so that's also true. Yeah. Um, but do, I mean, perspective changes. Do the people at Hiroshima deserve what happened to them or any of the firebombings, the civilians, especially because of their government? Do the civilians in Georgia, children, women, deserve what happened to them because of their government? We end up in this this circular conversation about it, but. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe a better question or it's better, but a different question is, and it's one I think you asked at the beginning, Eric, is, is is. the the bombing, the dropping of the two bombs, if it's not justified, and personally I don't think it was, was it the best out of a bad set of options that the United States had? Or was there a better option that they could have done to bring about an end to the war or ensure a lasting peace, maybe is a better way to put it? What do you guys think? Well, I think Eric already touched on this. I mean, if you're the if you're the only country with a working atomic bomb at the end of world war two, which is basically global chaos. <clears throat> you know, it, I, I don't know if it matters if you're the good guy or not, like you become the power and that lasted for a long time, arguably still lasts. It was wildly effective if that was their goal. So did they need to do it to win the war? Apparently not, but, if they were trying to send a message, it worked exceedingly well. Well, I I think, Eric, you've told me this anecdotally, that as Germans are surrendering to the United States, that they're like, so we're going to go fight the Russians now, right? And you said Patton was down for it, but Eisenhower <laughs> called him, brought him to heel because there was a legitimate fear that the Russians weren't going to stop in Germany, that they were going to just keep moving west. Well, and also... From the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917, 1819, up until the point that World War II started, 
communism was the enemy for the West. And so until Adolf Hitler and Mussolini kicked off their little shindig, uh, most people had their eyes on Moscow and what Moscow was doing, because that was the existential threat, you know, because everyone can read Karl Marx. That's the existential threat to the Western um, way of life. And so then you have fascists rise up and you're like, yeah, they're just fascists. You know, they're not communists until the fascists start a war. And then you have to win that war because that's the existential threat to you. And if the communists will help you, all right, you know, we'll take the help. But yeah, it, a lot of people realize that communism was going to be the bigger, longer term threat. Yeah. What do you think, Cameron? Do you think it was the best of a bunch of bad options or maybe there's a different way to bring about an end? Yeah. It, when you're when you're talking about entire countries and, and millions and millions of people as uh, the, the way that we handled um, Hitler in the very beginning of Hitler's rise, it was kind of like, OK, we're going to turn a blind eye to this and we're going to kind of ignore that. And look, look how it, you know, really exploded from there. So I, I guess there's something to be said for not giving it a half measure, you know, to, to totally um, finish off and, and show so much force. Um, it's, it's convincing and, and it's hard to argue with the results from an American perspective generations um, after the fact, you know, our, our country is still, you know, the most prosperous, safest country the world has ever known. Um, and to say that this didn't contribute to it would, would probably be wrong. I don't, I don't know how much necessarily. I, you can't say, oh, the reason that America succeeds today is because we made that choice, but it certainly contributed to that. Um, it worked out. Yeah. And I think Jeff and Cameron, you guys touched on this and, uh, the, one of the articles I read basically said part of the reason we did it is because we were able to sell it and said the United States defeated Japan, not the Soviet Union. And that lifted our prestige on the world stage as a result of that. And so whether or not it was good, morally good or justified, I don't think it was. It was effective. It accomplished the, that goal, which it was definitely a goal that the United States had. Um the only alternative I really see that I think would have been better than the bombing is what General MacArthur alluded to. And is a quote from the um, uh, Asian Pacific uh, Journal. It says, General MacArthur believed that Japan would have surrendered as early as May if the United States had not insisted upon unconditional surrender. MacArthur was appalled at the Potsdam Declaration issued by the United States, Britain, and China on July 26, which threatened utter destruction if Japan did not surrender unconditionally. As his biographer wrote, he knew the Japanese would never renounce their emperor and that without him, an orderly transition to peace would be impossible anyhow, because he would never submit to Allied occupation unless he ordered it, because his people would never submit to Allied occupation unless he ordered it. So... That's the only thing I can see where is a better alternative is that 
if the United States and the allies push for a negotiated peace or a negotiated surrender as opposed to an unconditional surrender. That may have brought Japan to the table earlier because it looks like they were kind of shopping, hoping the Soviet Union would mediate for them. Um, so it's not that they weren't against surrendering. They just wanted to be able to negotiate it and not have it unconditionally, which if this was in May, that the, the firebombing of 1945 that summer would never have happened. Those 68 cities theoretically would be spared. Obviously, Hiroshima and Nagasaki would be spared. The world would look very different if, if that had happened, because there's a good chance Japan would have kept some of its conquested territories. But I don't know if that's better or worse, but that, that would have been a very different geopolitical situation. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, Jake, and you and I have had this conversation many times. Like, in, in your historical perspective seems to be very much and I don't I don't know how to say it the right way, but optimistic, maybe um, trusting people to do. I'm a half right class thing. Tech guy. Yeah, I, I mean, everybody I, says it when, when we get into these conversations, you know, you're you're typically the hey, people will do the right thing. And, and had we gone down that road and, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with you in this case because um, it would have been interesting. But I think our country probably would not have been the number one superpower as by as big of a margin for as long had it not gone down the way that it did. And, and, and again, I'm not I'm not advocating one way or another. It's just kind of interesting to think what would have been. It would have been different for sure. And this, the Pacific and Southeast Asia would have looked very different. The maps would be drawn very differently had Japan surrendered in May as opposed to August, September. But again, I don't know if that's better or not, but I think that's the only more quote unquote humane option that the United States had was if they could have found a way to accept a negotiated surrender as opposed to a absolute or unconditional surrender. But like you said, I don't know, because that doesn't take into a lot of factors. If we don't drop the bomb, then we don't send that warning shot to Soviet Union that says, hey, you stop here. You, you don't keep coming. But yeah. ideally, you end the war as quickly as possible with as little bloodshed as possible. And everybody gets along. <laughs> um Talk about optimistic. Well, and, you know, that's funny. That, that's a very, that's a very optimistic take. Is Sherman, General Sherman, in the Civil War, basically had that approach. He's like, "War is hell, and I'm going to make it as bad as possible, so it's as over mm -hmm. as soon as possible." And, and, and that's that's it, that was a valid thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and Jeff started at the top of the show talking about his son's fighting, and and sometimes that needs to be there needs to be a resolution there. Um, because if there's two, you know, if, if two different sides are too equal, um, there becomes a rivalry and it becomes bitter and, and it gets out of control. Maybe, maybe Russia and the U S are, um, you know, maybe the cold war is worse if, if things yeah. didn't go down that way.
Yeah, I think it's a big topic. I mean, we could we could talk about it all night because there's so many different different layers to this and different um, angles you can take it. Yeah, I agree. Um, but probably shouldn't take do it all night. But uh, so with that, do you guys have any final thoughts on this topic specifically? Eric, you got anything? No. Well, maybe. Probably. Yeah, I do. He <laughs> says okay. no, yeah. and then he goes on to this. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, we talk about whether or not it's justified. I'm not sure that, or any of the bombings leading up to it were justified. Um, but was it necessary? That's where it gets tricky. Necessary to end the war? Probably not. Um, you know, obviously the United States needs to end this war in a way that makes clear that Japan's war-making capability is gone. And that means dismantling the system that allowed them to wage such war. And that's, that's, you know, the emperor and, you know, whoever was in charge. And so by not having the unconditional surrender, to the Americans, it seems it's not completely dismantled. We would never have come to the table with Nazi Germany ending the war and letting the Nazis stay in power. That's just not going to happen. So, you know, in that respect, if if we were always going to hold out for unconditional surrender, then then it seems necessary. And then you have to take into account... What does our um, intelligence apparatus tell us about the state of Japan? And what do we know is going to happen? Do we know that the Russians are, the Soviets are, are planning to declare war? Do we know that they did declare war? Do we know that that's kind of what the Japanese are waiting on? Um, you know, if our intelligence isn't giving us the right information, then we can't determine if it's actually necessary or not. So the necessity is tricky because the invasion always sounds like it's going to be very costly. And that's what we've always been told. It's going to be up to a million American lives. And that, I think, for most people would be unacceptable. Well, and, and that was unacceptable to Truman, which is what he said was a big yeah. part of why he dropped it, because he wanted to spare as many Americans as he could. And I think that's a really good point, Eric. Like, when we look back on these historical events, it's always interesting to say who knew what when. Um, how how accurate was that knowledge? And, you know, had they had a better, you know, even had this occurred today with modern technology and, you know, better intel, what would have happened then? Yeah. I agree. I, I think there's a lot of unknowns. I do think regarding what you said about the Soviet Union, that was negotiated kind of in secret between the allies that the Soviet Union is going to break their neutrality pledge. They they knew that was happening, um, but I don't think they knew that maybe they had a hope that that was what was going to bring Japan to the table. I don't know if they knew that, though. Uh, Jeff, do you have any thoughts? Final words? No, not really. I mean, if you're going to go to war, you better win it. Otherwise, it's going to get really ugly for you. 
Hey, you're not wrong. That's true. Jeez. That's that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I I love America. I love the idea of America. But, you know, digging into this, the, the word war crime just keeps coming up in my mind and my research over and over. And it's uh, it's hard to argue with. It was uh, some really bad, abhorrent stuff was done. Uh, you know, is it total war? Is it all in an effort to win the war? I don't know. You uh, you, you, you firebomb cities that don't that that aren't military targets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, and, it's, it's really hard to reconcile you know, it's, it, that. It is, and unfortunately, we're seeing that play out right now um, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're not firebombing them, but they're bombing civilian targets pretty frequently. And yeah, and if they win, that, they'll probably get away with it. Yeah, and they'll find a way to justify it, but. Um, yeah, but like that's so jarring. Like we accept war, we accept that people will fight and, and die and, and kill each other, but seeing these cities and stuff getting shelled where it's women and children and, and just, just everyday people, it's like, you know, it's interesting. It disturbs us on a visceral level. When this, when this conflict started, when, when the, when Russia invaded Ukraine back in February, and I think it was in March, some of my students were, were, we're tinkering with this conversation and they said, did you see what Russia did? And I said, I don't know what they do. And I said, well, they, they bombed like an orphanage or some civilian yeah. building. And they said, what do you, what do you think we should do? And I asked them, what are you willing to do? Like, we're not at war with them, but what are you willing to do for that action? Let's say they killed 150 women and children. What are you willing to do as rep- retribution or that's going to stop them from doing that again? Like, are you okay with dropping a JDAM missile into the middle of Moscow and killing 4,000 civilians? Are you okay with that? And, and they took some time with that thought because the thought of what's wrong in their minds, obviously they knew what Russia was doing was wrong, but they couldn't really get a handle on finding the, the, the action to take in response that wouldn't also be wrong on a similar level. Mm, that's a really interesting like, point. What are we going to do? And I kept asking, what do you want to do? And then let's walk that out to where that goes, because we can sure we can throw a few bombs at Russia. What happens next? Like, are you willing to handle all that over 150 women and children? Like, that's not a small thing, women and children. Any number. It's what (laughs) what they did was wrong. They need to be punished. But what's an appropriate response that isn't also just as bad, if not worse? That's a pretty tough question. Maybe the best quote is from Tolkien. Don't be so quick to deal out death and judgment. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good quote. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's end it there. Um, Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for those of you that listen. Uh, If you liked what you heard or saw, you can see us on YouTube. Uh, we're also on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, on all of it. And we have an audio podcast. Uh, so like, subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, 
I'm Jake from Dadbot History, and you guys have a great day in history. See you all next week. Ooh, I like it. <laughs>